In an article written by Ryan Avent uh, in the journal 1843, the article was entitled, Why Do We Work So Hard? And there's a quote from the article. It says, The dollars and hours pile up as we aim for a good life that is always just out of reach. In moments of exhaustion, we imagine simpler lives in smaller towns and more free hours for family and hobbies and for ourselves. Perhaps we live in a nightmarish arms race. And if we were all just to disarm collectively, then we could all live a calmer, happier, more equal life. But he goes on, that is not quite how it is. The problem is not that overworked professionals are all miserable. Now listen carefully. The problem is not that overworked professionals are all miserable. The problem is that they are not. The tagline to the article read, Our jobs have become prisons from which we do not want to escape. Uh, after introducing the promise to Abraham to us in Galatians, Paul tells us that God always had one intention, and that the addition of the law of Moses did not undo the promise that he had given to Abraham with the intent to justify all those who believed by faith. But if you're going to listen carefully to what Paul said about the law, and if then you come to realize that Abraham and his promise of the seed were always intended, there is a question that should come to mind that Paul himself presents to us this morning. Well, why then the law? I mean, why give the law at all? If Abraham and his promise led to Christ and salvation, why put something in between Abraham and Christ that would seemingly cause so much difficulty and heartache and also appear so opposed to the very nature of Abraham's covenant. I mean, why the law? For Paul, and as we will see in this book, for us as well, the law has completely become decentered, if you will, from the life of faith. It is not the primary thing any longer. But of course, the question becomes, for those who have lived all life long under that law, kind of, what now and, and why? Why did God do that for a time? And why would he, uh, you know, remove that as the way of directing, or, or at least leading us in the covenant? Is the law an enemy? I mean, was the law a problem? Was it a mistake? And Paul would say, well, no. It was clearly given by God, and in some sense, it's like Him, according to Romans. It's holy and good and just. It reflects His very nature and character. I mean, so why all the seemingly negative energy and assessment concerning the law when Paul brings it before the Galatian church? Why so much seeming hostility on Paul's part? What we want to see this morning is it's precisely because of our fatal truly fatal love affair with the law. We are like those workers where our jobs have become prisons from which we don't want to escape. Paul would say the law has become a prison or can become a prison from which we do not want to escape. And if we are not careful, we will miss the very purpose and centrality of Christ in the gospel if we don't see that. We are in a constant battle, Paul will tell us, with Stockholm Syndrome. The law may be a prison, but it's one that we've come, and a captor and a guardian, but it's one that we've come to love uh, and in some sense 
to love in a way that is dangerous for our own well-being and surely for our life of faith. And so let us see first this morning the law as a prison warden. Paul begins by answering the objection, is the law contrary to the promise? You know, are they at odds? Are they enemies? Uh, And Paul responds with the most negative uh, um, denial that you can give in New Testament language. You know, this certainly not that you hear is the same one that Paul uses, you know, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? He uses the same term. He says, you know, by no means, certainly not. You know, it's as strong as a negative as you can give in the Greek language. But when he says that they are not contrary to one another, he means it in a very specific way. You'll note that we've seen, because of what Paul has already told us, that the law is contrary to the promise in many ways. Uh, One demands things and gives rewards if you meet the demands. The other promises things and gives them without regard to merit or obedience. One can give life and the other cannot. So in many ways, the law and gospel are contrary. They are opposites. So how is it that Paul now says, no, 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 the law is not contrary to the promise? Well, he doesn't mean that they have the same nature because law and promise by nature are different. And he doesn't mean they serve the identical role uh, in their place in redemptive history because surely, again, they're opposites in that regard. But rather, Paul is saying they're not contrary to one another in that they have the same view and goal in mind. They're driving us to the same place. But to get us to that end, they serve two completely different purposes and roles in our life. They're two different tools for two different jobs that serve the same ultimate purpose though in radically different ways. So notice, for Paul, law and gospel are not in competition with one another because the one cannot and does not even seek to do what the other one does. The law was never trying to overcome or or, or take the place of the promise, Paul is saying. Notice his language. If a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would have come by the law. So the law clearly cannot bring life. The law carries with it, you know, a a DNR over sinners, you know. Every time it meets a sinner, uh, it makes a pronouncement that you're going to die, and then it also says, once you die, do not resuscitate. Or even better, the law says, cannot resuscitate. I just can't do anything about it. I can, you know, I can come, I can announce and pronounce that you're dead. I can even possibly speak to the cause of death. I can, you know, I can do an autopsy and tell you how you got here. Uh, but I have absolutely no power or ability to bring you back to life. The law is a pontificator when, as sinners, we desperately need a defibrillator. Uh, as one author writes, mortality helps most, I'm sorry, morality helps most when it has the least to object to. I mean, if morality is a guide at all, it is a guide to perfecting one's virtues, not the reform of one's vices. Morality can keep non-gamblers from being foolish at the racetrack, but it does not keep child abusers from beating children or compulsive liars from lying or lechers from leching. For those in the front line of their own faults, it is just a lovely, cruel vision of a home that they cannot get to. The law only makes sin exceedingly sinful. 
It never saved anyone who really needed help. And so notice, Paul is saying the law just can't remedy your issue. It can tell you what the issue is, but it's not going to be of any help to bring you back to life. But that, again, of course, forces the question, so why the law? And Paul tells us that the law, even in its lethal mode, was given to serve the promise of God in a particular way. And the first way that it serves is as a prison warden. You see that in verse 19 and following. Well, we'll go back and forth. But it says, It was added because of transgressions. First, we see that the law was an add-on to the promise. And it was an add-on to serve a very temporary purpose. For Paul, you'll notice there is a before the law, 430 years before the law came, was the promise to Abraham. And there is going to be an after the law. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Look at verse 23. Until the coming of faith, verse 24, until Christ came, verse 25. Now that faith has, and then again, no longer under. All these temporal markers showing there is a before and an after to this phase that he is naming the law. So what does that mean that it was added because of transgressions? Well, you'll see throughout the whole of the Old Testament that transgression is a technical term. And it means an intentional violation of a known rule. Right? If sin and you're, you know, if you remember your Sunday school days is, you know, missing the mark, we sin a lot of times on, on accident, out of ignorance, out of just, you know, sheer uh, our own folly. But, but transgression is when you see the rule, you know the rule, you know who gave the rule, and you say, I'm just not going to do that anyway. It's intentional breaking of a known rule by God. And the law came into the world of sin, right? Sin already existed. People already were fallen. And it, if you will, it made those sins official, it named them and marked them and told you what the penalties were for them. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known that what coveting really was if the law had said, You shall not covet. So for what purpose would God do this? I mean, what is the role of producing transgressions. According to Paul in this text, you'll notice it says it's to put Israel under lock and key, to imprison them. God says, I, I gave the law because of transgressions, but they say in order to, to, to bring about transgressions, in order then to put Israel under watch, under lock and key, imprisoned for a time until faith could come. Well, how does that work? Notice the law says, do this specifically. And sin, which already existed in us, says, nah, I don't want to do that specifically. And then the law says back, well, that's going to be a problem. And here's the penalty for now what you refuse to do. Before that, sin still would have existed, but you wouldn't have known all the details both of what was expected as well as what the actual and official consequence was going to be. And the law made all of those things very plain. And in this way, it imprisoned in that it convicted and condemned Israel throughout their whole existence. They were obligated to keep it always. 
And they were exposed to it continually, day after day, through their teaching and upbringing and through uh, temple and then eventually synagogue. And therefore, they were condemned by it repeatedly, day after day after day. That was its job. It was a prison warden. But notice, Paul says it was also a guardian. Look at verse 24, the law as guardian. This word gets translated many ways, uh, but in reality, it was a technical term that was used throughout the Greco-Roman world for uh, a role that we don't really have anymore. I think the closest thing we would have is maybe a nanny or something to that effect. Uh, but if you've read enough C.S. Lewis or other things, you kind of see people in this role uh, in, 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 in previous days. It was referred to one who was in charge of watching over a child until they reached a particular age of maturity. And so typically, you would have a male slave who would be charged with a very young person, six, seven or so, and that they would watch over that child for about 10 years and not just watch over them as in like make sure they don't touch the stove, but they were to train them in language, they were to train them in manners, they were to make sure they got back and forth to their obligations and schooling and tutoring and so on and so forth. And they were in charge of discipline, often very harsh and physical discipline, uh, all in order to present them to their master, the father of this child, as one matured and ready for adult life, in which, at which point they would then, if you will, graduate into a more official position of sonship. The term has slightly negative connotations, not fully, but slightly, as oftentimes these overseers were severe, and they were strict. I mean, their, their life often depended on it. They were duty-bound to make sure that this child of their master was kept safe and raised correctly in a way that would be pleasing then to the master of the home. And so consider that, 10 years or so, there this person would be in your life, mourning, until evening, always present, always pronounced. Uh, you know, as you're sitting at the table, don't chew with your mouth open. You know, don't eat with that fork at this time. Uh, sit up, don't slouch. That's improper grammar. Your chores need to be done. Your chores need to be done better than that. Your chores need to be done faster than that. Uh, and this, of course, would take place day after day, year after year, until the child was presented to the father without need of supervision. Well, Paul says that was the job of the law, to keep Israel under guardianship until the faith came. Meaning the law's role was supervisory, but notice it was also temporary. It wasn't going to last forever in this particular context. It was something needed for Israel when Israel was a child until what God had intended by the promise finally came to pass in the Messiah. In fact, it prepared them for this day. It made them ready to see it when they came, or it should have. How so? Look at verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And again in verse, 24, I mean verse 25, in order that we might be justified by faith. See, part of the role of the law was to prepare them in such a way that they would see that justification is by faith 
and no other possible way. That if the role of the law wasn't temporary, then they would forever be under its condemnation with no relief. They would just hear its voice constantly telling them, do more, be more, try harder, work harder, sit up, close your mouth when you chew, uh, so on and so forth. But when Messiah comes, the role of the law should have ushered them to a place where it was, now we see how God will make us righteous. Not by this means, which is futile and is constantly condemning, but by this other means, by means of promise through faith. You see, it can't give life, and it can't make righteous, but that was never its job. It was always preparatory. It was prepping us, if you will, for Jesus, offering release from prison to freedom. It showed us clearly, time and again, what we could not achieve so that when the promise came and gave us what we could never achieve, we would reach out with the hand of faith and take hold of it. Calvin says in regard to these verses, this sentence is full of the highest consolation. It tells us that wherever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, There is help provided for us in Christ if we betake ourselves to him. Now listen here. We are lost even if God was silent. So notice the the before the law part. He says we were lost in sin even if God hadn't said anything, we were going to die in our sins. Why then does he so often pronounce time and again that we are lost? It is so that we may not perish by everlasting destruction, but struck and confounded by such a dreadful sentence, we might be provoked by, uh, by faith to seek Christ through whom we pass from death unto life. So Calvin says, you know, why does God keep telling us through the law, you're lost, you're lost, you're lost? Is it just so that he can keep beating us over the head with something and say, like, try again harder next time? You know, it's like, no, so that... When you finally realize there's no way out of being lost, and then Christ is presented to you by promise as the forgiveness of your sins and a way out of this demise, the relief and the release would be something that drove us to him by faith. So consider this. After all those years of the law comes Jesus as a way out of this eternally hopeless predicament. You know, we could have been on that same merry-go-round time and time again, and here comes the solution in human flesh for us. And listen to Paul's argument. God makes a direct promise to Abraham about a single seed who would come and set the nations free. And then on top of that promise comes Moses. And Moses comes to lock them up, until that single seed comes to pass. It was never meant to justify. It was meant to keep them there until the one who would justify them would come in human flesh. So when he comes, the law must go. It served its purpose. It kept them, if you will, under lock and key. It brought them to the place where they'd been raised well so that when the Messiah came, they would run to him And it no longer serves its original purpose. 
And Paul is warning us here, beware of Stockholm Syndrome. You guys know what that is, right? Uh, you know, that syndrome where one begins to show an undue loyalty to someone that has captured them. Uh, you know, Patty Hearst is probably one of the most famous examples in our own culture, you know, where she's kidnapped and then the next time you see her on the news, she's with her captors armed and robbing a bank with them, you know. And you think, you know, all the sympathy that was there for the Hearst family and for her, all of a sudden, uh, population-wise, was lost. Because it was like, well, how dare she fight against these people or fight with these people who are against all common decent society? But of course, that's not something that just happens uh, you know, because people make rational decisions, but you become conditioned through small kindnesses of those who have abused you severely to think that your loyalty and love is due to them. It's hard for us to understand when we see it to show loyalty to one's captor, but it happens all the time. You see it in abusive relationships pretty consistently. But it's also why Paul is so frustrated with the Galatians. It's why he uses such hard language. It's why he says, you know, you're fools, and I wish you would emasculate yourselves. It's because Christ has come to set them free, and they're turning back and saying, man, we really love the law. And he's saying, the law is what kept you as captive for all those years so that Christ could rescue you. Now that he's here to go back to the law is to go back to that thing that will continually abuse and imprison you. And it's so much more serious now. The law was temporary, leading us to Jesus, but now that Jesus is here, consider this. To go back to the law now, it has nowhere to lead you. Its whole point was to lead you to the coming of Messiah. And if Jesus comes... And you look at him and you say, well, that's great, but I'm going to go back to the law. Where does the law lead now? Paul would say the only thing it has left is bare demands that will end in condemnation. So to go back is to go back to your own destruction. And so the last thing we want to see this morning is Christ as liberator. If the law is a prison warden and a guardian, you'll notice that Paul puts before us Christ as a liberator in these final few verses. Paul, now that he has taken the law, and especially to those who would be stumbling the Galatian congregation, those who have said the law is preeminent, and he's saying, oh, the law is not preeminent. That way of, uh, of relating to God by that covenant is gone. Now that he's decentered that, what does he want to make central or put before us as front and center. Notice, Paul says, since you are baptized, you have been clothed with Christ. Literally, you've put on, you've been dressed with Christ as a garment. You wear Christ as your cloak. When you are seen, according to Paul, through your baptism, through the water baptism that all of us who have come into Christ's churches have undergone, or come into Christ's churches have undergone, all that is seen in that baptism, according to Paul, is Jesus. Which means if you wear his clothing and if you wear his person, you have all of his rights and all of his privileges at your disposal. We're no longer, you'll notice, seen as the law sees us. And Paul makes that plain. Notice what he says. There's no more Jew or Gentile. 
There is no more slave or free. There is no more male or female. Now, these are all categories that the law would rank you based on and quickly. The law doesn't waste any time in telling you who's who in any particular room. And guess what? Some things are better than other things, according to this. It's better to be a Jew than to be a Gentile, according to the law. It is better to be free than to be a slave, according to the law. And it is better, sorry, uh, to be a male than to be a female, according to the law. And we'll get into that and what that means here in a moment. So notice, the Jew preferred to the Gentile is clear that the law privileges the Jew in many ways. As a Gentile, you cannot ever be a possessor of actual land grant in Israel. You can come in as a convert, you can even get circumcised, but you will not be, according to any tribe, an inheritor of a particular piece of land. To be free is surely the better than being a slave. I mean, slaves have the same limits according to the law. They can't be landowners. And even Jewish slaves who get into indentured servanthood lose their land until the year of Jubilee. They are, if you will, brought under the sanctions of the law and they become less than in the eyes of the law. The male is privileged over the female in relation to the law. I mean, who's the inheritor? According to all that the law says, the male, and especially the firstborn male, will inherit. Who gets the covenant, of si- covenant sign? All the sons born to the household. Who has to battle more with the cleanliness laws? You know, men have a thing or two to worry about, like what happens when their wife becomes unclean through childbirth or through menstruation. Or th- but there's so many more things that the women in the Old Testament have to worry about under the confines of the law Paul is saying the law will enter a room and it will tell you immediately who's who and what you're worth. He says, but no longer does it work that way. While the law ranks constantly and tells you who matters most, baptism washes all. Rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, American, Russian, black and white, coastal liberals, and middle American Republicans. Every one of them baptized in the fount of, uh, of water that presents Christ to us is given the exact same rights and privileges in the family of God. Social worth is utterly reordered through our baptism and union with Christ, which means you can no longer enter the church and say, I know who ranks where because of how much money they make or what color they are or, you know, what they, you know, uh, 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 are affiliated with and so forth. Paul says, do they have the water of baptism on them? Then they have been washed and clothed with Christ and have the identical rights and privileges of Christ himself. Notice in Christ, and this is super offensive to our current ears, says we are all sons of God. He doesn't say we're all God's children or all God's kids, but that we're all God's sons. And that's very intentional because we have been clothed with Jesus, the firstborn son who's going to be inheritor of all things. And he says, I don't want you to miss out on anything, so guess what? Since you are clothed with Christ, you are all now Firstborn sons, because you wear Christ himself. 
Notice after the passing of the law as guardian, we are all given full status in the family. Every single one of us, male or female, is a son of God. And you'll notice Paul isn't talking here about gender roles in society or who should hold church office or otherwise. People have tried to drive a Mack truck through this text. It's talking about the benefits of the promise in Christ for all who believe. All will be sons because firstborn sons inherit. They are the legal beneficiaries of the estate of the father. The wealth and honor of the family is passed on to the son. And Jesus is the firstborn son in whom God is well pleased and all has been given to him. And you wear him now, according to Paul, as your garment, as your cloak in baptism. And when you are seen through that baptism, all that is seen is Jesus. All that he's earned, all that he's done, all that he now possesses. And your former status doesn't matter one bit, and it can't keep you from it. Where the law declares you bankrupt, your baptism says you are rich in Christ by faith. And any worth you find and any capital you carry that is not found in belonging to Jesus has to lose its ultimate significance. But that's part of the problem, right? That's Stockholm Syndrome. We love to find our own worth, to make our own way, to have something to hang our hat on. And you can know you're doing that if you rank yourself at all against other people in the body of Christ. You know, the... Uh, the super spirituals versus the less than spirituals. Uh, guess what? We're all doomed. And without Christ as our garment, none of us has anything to give save an account for all of our sins. And yet how desperately we want one up on our fellow man, but all of our doing has been drowned in the waters of baptism. And Paul is finding this reality hard for the Galatians in practice, much like I'm sure we find it hard to practice here. But saints, God has given you this gift based on nothing in you, all of grace, and that now must determine not only how you view yourself and how you find your worth, but how you view others and how you mark them as worthy. As soon as you lose this truth, you lose the gospel. And as soon as you lose this truth, you crush Christian community. But to be remembered, to remember not only your baptism, but that you sit in a baptized community is to remember that all have been found utterly worthy and approved based on nothing in themselves. And therefore, you have every right to love and serve them without hesitation, without ranking, without thinking, maybe they need to do a few things first before they are worthy of this sort of time and attention. You, in Christ, owe no man anything except the utter debt of love because that is what Christ has given you fully and freely when the law never could have. May we live our lives based on this new reality as we see ourselves and one another in Christ. Let's pray.